Picking up where we left off. A Holling Center podcast. Hosted by Michael Carroll. Welcome to Picking Up Where We Left Off. I'm Michael Carroll, Executive Director for the Holling Center for International Dialogue. Over the past decade, higher education authorities and institutions have engaged in a process of rapid internationalization. Internationalization, usually defined as the increase in students and scholars seeking opportunities abroad, actually encompasses more. It includes critical issues such as student and scholar mobility, creating new cultural awareness and curriculum opportunities at home institutions, as well as virtual exchanges and other types of collaboration. The number of students studying internationally topped more than 5.6 million in 2020. However, the COVID-19 pandemic created a sharp and sudden disruption to ongoing trends. Some trends have changed since the pandemic. The deployment of virtual technologies has greatly increased access and opportunities. Yet at the same time, higher education internationalization still suffers from a Western bias, a lack of mutual exchange, and elitism. In recent years, other nations have begun investing heavily in internationalizing their institutions. Creative concepts such as internationalization at home and regional partnerships are trying to change the global landscape. In late 2021, the Holling Center hosted a virtual dialogue to reevaluate trends in higher education internationalization and how they were affected by the pandemic, with positive and negative trends as well as institutional inertia. So, To pick up where we left off on higher education internationalization, we're pleased today to bring back two dialogue participants to evaluate these new trends. Hans de Witt is a professor emeritus and a distinguished fellow at the Center for International Higher Education at the Lynch School of Education and Human Development at Boston College. De Witt is a senior fellow of the International Association of Universities and chair of the Board of Directors of World Education Services based in New York and Toronto. He is the founding member and past president of the European Association for International Education. Hans, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be there. Elena Corbett is the director of education abroad at AMED East. Prior to that position, she was the center director at the Council on International Educational Exchange in Amman for almost five years. She has 25 years' experience in specialized research, teaching, and publishing about the modern Middle East, with an extensive second career of leadership experience in higher education administration for international nonprofits operating and or specializing in the MENA region. And Elena, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. It's really nice to be here with both of you. I appreciate the opportunity. So let's dive in. For the audience, they may not understand the depth of what we're talking about when we're talking about higher education internationalization. So when we talk about higher ed internationalization, what are we actually talking about? And Hans, I'd like to start with you. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, the most complicated question probably you can ask in this topic because internationalization means many different things to many different people uh, depending on uh, the context they are in. Uh, So uh, we have seen over the years many different definitions of what is internationalization, but the most important aspects are that it's a process. So it's not something that uh, is concrete and happens and that mission accomplished, but it's an ongoing process. Uh, and it is a process to integrate the international, intercultural and global dimensions into the three functions of higher education, education, research and service to society. 
uh, it is also a means to enhance the quality of what we are doing. So it's not something like it happens and then we are international. No, it has a, it's not a goal in itself, internationalization, but it's a means to enhance the quality of what we are doing in education, research and service to society. It should not be for only a small elite of students or faculty or institutions, but should be for all students, all faculty, all administrators, all institutions. And it should also not be for what has been in the past uh, decades the case, uh, only for commercial enterprises, but it should be in particular for a service to society. So how can we solve the problems that society has with respect to sustainable development goals? And by that, it has to be an intentional process. It's not going without intentions of leaderships of institutions, governments, and other stakeholders, how we internationalize. So that is in a very broad shape, a, a very umbrella definition of what is internationalization uh, in higher education. And then it has different programs and strategies, etc. But maybe Elena, you can follow up on that. As a faculty member in traditional higher education, I mean, I, I worked in a context where internationalization was very much focused on national security endeavors. And that's problematic in so many ways, but it also opens a lot of doors to transcend that, right? I mean, within that framework, as, as staff, as students, as faculty, there's a lot you can do if you're open and you're intentional and you're purposeful to push that beyond that very narrow, let's say, for lack of a better word, colonialist framework. I've also been in institutions where the bulk of internationalization was, you know, how many full tuition paying non-US students can we get into this institution and say, you know, add some fluffy language in there about how, you know, how they add something, but really what they're there for is, is for the bottom line. Um, and particularly when that happens in flagship institutions, you know, how, how do we support financially our branch campuses by, you know, not hosting those, those international students at, at the flagship. Um, as a, as a practitioner now in a very particular part of this, which is the education abroad. So students from, from the U.S. going outside the U.S. to study. Um, I, I wanted to pick up a little bit on, you know, what you said about the sustainable development goals, because in so many ways we are, we are unfortunately in a position to be reactive to in higher education institutions, which really drive, drive the bus here. Um, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Um, there really is this, this existential thing um, about interna internationalization now, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the sustainable development goals. I mean, one is the basic issue of, you know, uh, survivability, human survivability on a habitable planet, right? And the second one of those, and you touched on this, is humanity is is the, the the other you know inseparable aspect of humanity. There, how do we go about that? How do we go about that survivability in a way that is that is just, that is equitable, um, that that is an answer that it, that that is a, a a functional answer that captures the best of us as, as as humanity and human beings and the best of what we can be, and not its opposite. I think you address indeed very important aspects. So one is context. So context is essential. 
there's not one model that fits all internationalization. It is different by types of institution. If you are a top world-class university like Harvard or Tsinghua University or whatever, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, etc. If you are a national research university or I, you're much more a university of applied sciences or a community college, that very defines the type of internationalization that you focus on. Uh, in the top world-class universities is competition for top uh, faculty and top uh, talents in the graduate level, uh, which is completely different than in a community college where it is really to give the uh, students from uh, first generation diversity and low income a possibility to have an international intercultural experience. So type of institution context is different, but also it's very different if you talk about the United States or you talk about uh, a country like the Netherlands, where I'm based now, or you talk about the Middle East or uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, because they are in a different dominance or sub-dominance or colonialized context. And so that also defines internationalization. So context is very essential. The second one is that you have all kinds of different types of uh, study abroad, uh, internationalization. You have to study abroad, which you mentioned. So students who go as part of their home degree for a semester or a year or shorter, unfortunately, every time shorter these days, uh, abroad as part of your study in your institution, or you go for a full degree uh, at the bachelor, at the master or the PhD level abroad. Uh, or it is faculty mobility, where is, uh, again, full-time faculty mobility that find a job somewhere else or just go for research to conferences or go for teaching in an, uh, in an other institution. Then there is, as you mentioned, branch campuses, which is um, not the people are moving, but the institution are moving. You have articulation programs where students do a part of their degree at home and a part of degree abroad. Um, there is, of course, the whole dimension of what we call internationalization at home, because what, we, what I mentioned before, what you mentioned is internationalization abroad, so the whole mobility side. But internationalization at home means how can we make the large majority of the students and the faculty much more competent to address the issues of globalization of our societies and uh, how we can uh, help them to understand what is happening in the world and try to improve that. So those two dimensions, internationalization abroad and internationalization at home, are very important components, which unfortunately still the internationalization at home side is very much talked about, but not implemented much, where the, still the focus is on internationalization abroad for a very small number of students, faculty and administrators. So um, in that sense, internationalization in practice is still a very elitist uh, process uh, and mainly a process that is dominated by the Western world. Maybe we can describe a little bit more not only the elitism, which, you know, has been a problem even preceding the pandemic, obviously. But, um, you know, what, if any, actions have been taking place to start breaking down some of these colonial barriers or these this colonialism and elitism that we've seen, which was talked about very extensively at the dialogue? Um, Elena, I'd like to pass it on to you because you work with a lot of on-the-ground programs, and I think you've witnessed a lot of this from different institutions and things like that. So maybe you can break it down a little for us. Because I, I do work with an organization that is entirely Middle East, North Africa-based, um, we have some really illustrative uh, sorts of things happening there that touch on this. Um, 
even going back to even before the pandemic, um, you know, there there were a couple of factors at work um, that I think have only been, and all of this has just been exacerbated um, on a, on account of the pandemic. Um, those factors were first, you know, the absolutely kind of minuscule percentage of U.S. higher higher education study abroad that happens in the global South generally. Uh, and in the, the MENA region um, in particular. Uh, and the, the second sort of knock on to that is, you know, what that small percentage does when it gets there, right? So it's overwhelmingly, you know, kind of politics with the big P, you know, for lack of a better word, securitization, um, development focused. Um, I'm, I'm not going to talk about la language is important too. I'm going to set that aside because that comes with its own kind of problematic, problematic things. Uh, but the, you know, the, where that takes us ultimately is that a market, you know, that very deliberately underdevelops itself in a global South context, you know, the, 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 the diver, you know, in the great diversity of the global South context, both in terms of like where, we can study and what we study there with, you know, the great impact, you know, as Hans just noted, of excluding the overwhelming majority of U.S. higher education. Um, it becomes for the, you know, the, the who students at the most elite schools um, at at, you know, the wealthiest schools and, you know, people who are interested in those kind of, you know, those careers where that colonialist focus, that focused on securitization, that focus on global north to global south development, you know, that unidirectionality of knowledge, right, as opposed to its opposite. Already, I can tell you anecdotally, and the numbers will bear this out, um, you know, the bulk of U.S., higher higher education study abroad you know happens in happens in the UK in Italy in Spain in France given the current they're back to they're back to pre-pandemic numbers we're no we're nowhere near that um we're seeing shrinking pools of students um sort of shrinking diversity of of interests of academic interests of career interests those two things are intimately tied together. Um, you can look at the situation, the current economic situation in the UK, for instance, and recent elections in Italy. If any of that had happened in any of our countries, in any countries of the global south, the, the you know, risk management people on campuses, their heads would be blowing up. I mean, we'd really be having conversations about whether the UK and Italy were viable and safe places for for US students to study, but because they, you know, almost alone constitute the bulk of of study abroad for US higher education institutions, none of that. I mean, it's like dead silence. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you say that because I mean, uh, that's a very important aspect. And uh, of course, uh, parents play an important role in that and uh, parents always look for security which is on the one hand understandable but they have not always a clear perception of what what is a secure place and uh, um, well the United States itself is not the most secure place these days so uh, uh, th that's also a kind of uh, interesting perception that people have 
And, and we could say, well, that's because most of the people are conservative, but most of the students who go study abroad are anyway from parents who are Democrats and would we could tend to be much more uh, liberal and open to adventure and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is not the case. And that you see in Europe as well, unfortunately, and uh, certainly in, in the English-speaking world, in the UK and in Australia, uh, also in Canada, there's a very little of uh, interest in going to study abroad in a much more diverse way. But it is also um, on the degree mobility. We see also that uh, it is more and more getting different than it was originally. There it was, students had the possibility from the Global South uh, to go on scholarships and uh, got the same kind of tuition fees as uh, local students everywhere around the world. And that has changed substantially. It was always different already in the United States because tuition fees were high for everybody. But it, it changed in Canada, it changed in the UK already early in, in the late 80s, uh, in Australia, and now also in continental Europe. And it is interesting already to see that those students who are not able to go now stay in the, their own region or go to countries like China, uh, go to Malaysia, go to Singapore, uh, and find other ways how to do that. So that might in itself be uh, not a bad movement uh, to be less dependent on uh, the global north, but uh, uh, it's all to be blamed on the whole marketization of, of internationalization that has happened over the past years. And we see it in all aspects. We see it also in research. We see it in, in publications. This whole dominance of the Western world keeps going. And um, that has not been changed by the pandemic. Everybody thought, well, this is the moment in the, the, with the pandemic to everybody was, everything was going to hold an internationalization. Now we can restart and move away from this neoliberal approach to a much more positive, uh, constructive uh, approach to e equality and inclusion. Uh, and the opposite is happening. Uh, everybody wants to go back uh, in the Western world to the same old methods of we want to have the students only if they pay. We want to uh, send our students only to the Western world because we think it's secure. We break our global engagement with the global south. Um, all those issues uh, to partly understandable with China and, of course, now very clearly with Russia, uh, which breaks the world into different blocks again, where we get back to a new kind of Cold War between, on the one hand, the Western world and the other hand, China and Russia and its affiliates, and then the non-aligned ones, which are struggling. Where do we go? Where we position ourselves? Uh, where can we get some kind of help from one side or the other side? And that's uh, that's very bad. That's uh, not good for uh, higher education. It's not good for international engagement. And it's not good for solving the problems of our society that we need. And I think that's a key takeaway, uh, you know, for this podcast that actually is in direct contrast to the virtual dialogue that we held about uh, a year ago at this time. A year ago at this time, there was actually quite a bit of hope about the concept of internationalization at home for example, being some sort of counterbalance to the, you know, uh, colonialism and the elitism that we've seen and the one directionality that we've seen uh, towards the West when it, when it has come to, to higher ed internationalization. And it's kind of disappointing. I think, uh, I think you're right, Hans, that it's this internationalization at home concept just hasn't come to fruition, which is unfortunate. Um, 
you know, it, it's shocking, actually, considering that, you know, we basically all spent the last two and a half years at home and we did not think of a better way to to do some of this. Um, and I'm a little discouraged, actually, to, to hear that, you know, the more things change during the pandemic, the more they just stayed the same. And if, if actually just got more entrenched and more fractured and more separated. So to conclude the podcast, because I want to try to do this on a slightly more positive note, if we can, uh, is, you know, where should we be putting our efforts at this point to try to reform some of these trends that just seem so entrenched? Is, is it possible? Is, are there things that we could be doing? Where could we put our focus? And, and I'd like at, uh, to ask both of you to answer the question as our lead out of the podcast today. It is important to end on a on a hopeful note, you know, for us, what we're experiencing right now in, in my in my little corner of this um, that is very hopeful is that while there aren't nearly enough of them, we are seeing, you know, the uh, educators um, of of more diverse backgrounds coming our way of more diverse interests. You know, we are seeing, you know, the people who train the professional dietitians come and, you know, they, they want to study in Tunisia. Um, and we are seeing mathematicians who come and want to study in Egypt. And we are seeing brewers, you know, people who are interested in study, you know, having an exchange about brewery in Jordan. <laughs> and we are seeing, you know, the, the, the people who train, you know, everybody who works in the hospitality industry wanting to come to come to the you know the great diversity of countries in the in, in the MENA region. Um, and we are seeing um, more more interdisciplinary interest in issues of social justice. So people who, who work on migration and people who work on environmental justice and environmental studies generally. The problem is there aren't enough of them. In this in this market, right? This market that is so driven by institutions of higher education, you know, um, they have the bulk of the power, right? And the most elite institutions among them have have the majority of the resources to make this more equitable and, and to make this happen. Like all hope is not lost, I guess. And, you know, for our part, you know, as the people who work on the, on the third party provider side of things, for lack of a better term, you know, we, there's a lot that we can do to get out and create those programming opportunities. We worked really hard to make virtual pivots, you know, virtual pivots that were not only innovative in terms of, you know, how, you know, how, how we, how we have them, how they're set up in terms of what the, what the um, financial structure is for them the how we base the tuition and fees sliding scales all these sorts of things you've seen a lot of these kinds of things happen don't give up on them right we can't give up on them just because the elite institutions are turning back to sending you know to putting students on planes and sending them abroad there are so many educators and students out there for whom that virtual pivot was revolutionary and for whom it leveled the playing field. So we've got to cling to those and keep, you know, do whatever we can to keep those, those programming opportunities on the table, to keep those pricing structures that make them affordable on the table, and to like apply any pressure that we can on, on the educations that on the institutions that hold the most, you know, the, the, the most power and have the most resources in this in this equation, in this market, 
you know, to use it for good or else it's not going to a very good place. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, I think indeed it is important not to end on a uh, negative note, but keep uh, optimism alive, uh, which is necessary for the future. And I think we see everywhere a more uh, concern about uh, our climate and how higher education can contribute to that. We see a much more critical thinking young generation of administrators and scholars that are work about uh, decolonization and how we can make more inclusion and equity happening. And we see also all kinds of interesting signs of uh, internationalization at home via collaborative online international learning, uh, which is much more inclusive than the mobility side on the physical point. So for many institutions in the global south, they have discovered, yes, it is possible to have students and faculty interact between institutions around the globe uh, without having to uh, to fund uh, mobility physically to go from one country to the other country you can do it online and i have seen very interesting examples of this kind of collaborative online international learning happening uh, between institutions in the global south and that i think is is a very positive side because it makes much more inclusion possible we have also seen that by research collaboration, we can solve serious problems like the pandemic by uh, vaccines uh, development internationally. Of course, also the side effect of that is that the Western world has been more profiting from that from the global south, and we have still to work on many things. So I will not say that everything is positive, but we have to look into what are the opportunities for a better world uh, through international collaboration, education, research, and service to society. And there are enough positive initiatives to keep the hope going that we can change the world, even in these very difficult times that we are. Because people will always react to negative things by looking into, yes, this is negative, but what can I do to make it different? And that's what we also see in internationalization of higher education. We see all kinds of new initiatives happening and that is in itself a very positive um, development and let's hope that it continues to be uh, because global engagement is more necessary than ever in the current situation. I think that's a perfect note to leave off on. I'd like to thank both of you for uh, joining us on the podcast today. Elena, thanks a lot for, for coming on and uh, for sharing your thoughts. Thank you. And Hans also, so likewise, thank you for sharing your thoughts today. Thank you very much as well. It's a pleasure to do it. If you'd like to know more about higher education internationalization, the Holling Center recently released a report of the dialogue that took place a year ago called Global Trends in Higher Education Internationalization. It can be found on the Holling Center website. The Holling Center for International Dialogue is a nonprofit, non governmental organization dedicated to fostering dialogue between the United States and countries with predominantly Muslim populations around the world. In pursuit of this mission, the Holling Center convenes dialogue conferences that generate new thinking on important international issues and deepen channels of communication across opinion leaders and experts. To learn more, go to hollingcenter.org.